Black Americans have been vital in the fight for civil rights. And not just when it comes to race. Numerous Black queer activists have fought for decades to secure equal rights for the LGBTQ community. Yet their names are often left out of our history books. I'm Cheyenne Daniels, race and politics reporter for The Hill. And this is The Switch Up. Today, we're going to examine the stories of some of our Black queer activists. Who were they? What did they do? And who are the activists we should know today? Just a warning, today's episode will talk about suicide, mental health, and sexual assault. Please listen cautiously. If you or someone you know are looking for support, contact the Suicide and Crisis Hotline at 988. Before we get into the history of our Black queer activists, we have to look at why we're talking about this today. Yes, it's Pride Month, but more than that, queer history and identity has become a defining political issue in recent years. This year especially, Black queer activists have begun to receive more attention, particularly after Florida Governor Ron DeSantis forbade an advanced placement African-American studies course from running in public schools in his state. One of his arguments was that queer history and Black history had no connection. So when I heard it didn't meet the standards, I figured, yeah, they may be doing serious. It's way more than that. This course on Black history, what are one of, what's one of the lessons about? Queer theory. Now, who would say that an important part of Black history is queer theory? That is somebody pushing an agenda on our kids. DeSantis's words immediately sparked backlash from groups like the NAACP, the Human Rights Campaign, and the National Black Justice Coalition, a civil rights organization dedicated to the empowerment of the Black LGBTQ plus community. What the governor said was absolutely just stupid um, because that's just not the case. And what they did with the AP exam is they politicized something that really wasn't an issue. Um, and it showed their deep ignorance around uh, the lack of queer history um, and its interconnectedness to Black history. For example, teaching these items have not created any type of hostile environment. Uh, it hasn't shot up any schools. It hasn't done any of the things that we're having issues with. These uh, pieces of literature uh, and these figures in history haven't done anything uh, to that to that regard. And so it really just shows the deep ignorance of many of these folks and that they are willing to go at nothing to make issues out of non-issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and make us villains, honestly. Um, and it's creating uh, a real hostile, violent, and violent environment in many of these uh, states. That's Leslie Hall, director of the Human Rights Campaign's HBCU program. We'll hear more from him later, but first, The Hill's Brooke Migdon is here to help us understand just how widespread some of this rhetoric and subsequent legislation is. Brooke covers LGBTQ identities and politics at The Hill, and she's been following the spread of anti-LGBTQ legislation for quite some time. But she really noticed that it began to pick up in 2020. According to the ACLU, we had uh, maybe less than 100 state bills um, targeting the LGBTQ community, somewhere around 80, 85. Then in 2021, we saw that number double. Then in 2022, we saw that number double. So now we're up to around 315 bills, according to the Human Rights Campaign. And now in 2023, we're up to 474 anti-LGBTQ bills. 
according to the ACLU. Um, other groups have it much higher. Um, they look at some some different metrics when it comes to anti-LGBTQ legislation. So the Human Rights Campaign, for example, is tracking over 520 anti-LGBTQ bills right now. Um, and the Movement Advancement Project is tracking around 650. 2023 is definitely the worst we've seen it so far in terms of like the actual volume but it is following a similar trend to what we've seen in the past when it comes to these laws actually getting passed. For example, last year we saw fewer than 10% of the bills introduced get passed into law. This year, you know, there's very it's very likely that there will be more passed into law in the coming months, but state legislative sessions for the most part are starting to wrap up. And we've seen around 48 bills become law, which is just over 10 percent. Many of these bills focus on school curriculums, limiting discussions about both sexual orientation and gender identity in classrooms, such as Florida's Parental Rights and Education Law, which critics dubbed the Don't Say Gay Law. But just over half of these bills specifically target transgender people. Those bills limit access to gender-affirming health care, despite most major medical organizations saying these services are medically necessary and often life-saving. There's also bills that ban transgender athletes from participating in school sports or using bathrooms that align with their gender identity. While there's no one politician necessarily leading this charge, it is a conservative movement, with organizations like the Alliance Defending Freedom, the Heritage Foundation, Focus on the Family, and Family Policy Alliance at the helm. Those groups are pushing anti-LGBTQ legislation, um, which is why, which is another reason why we see such similar bills being introduced in rapid succession across different states. You know, this really is not an organic process. These are, for the most part, copycat bills. Um, they're not exactly, you know, some language has been changed from state to state to make it more state specific. But the the foundation of those bills, the foundation of that legislation um, was not born inside the state legislature. It was created by conservative groups and then pushed upon the state legislature. We've seen anti-LGBTQ legislation introduced in more than 40 states this year. It's just, it's rampant, it's everywhere, even in blue states. Obviously, in blue states, that legislation has a lower chance of becoming law. Um, but we know that even the very introduction of these bills can have a severe and negative impact on the mental health of LGBTQ youth, um, particularly transgender non-binary youth. Leslie Hall from HRC points out that many of the laws limiting these discussions in classrooms are obsolete. Most teachers weren't having these conversations with their students, and that's even if they were instructing materials by those who we consider LGBTQ today. You know, uh, one of the ironies of these states passing these laws prohibiting these conversations is the fact that they weren't having these conversations to begin with, you know? And so it's like the moment 
some association tries to, you know, open open the eyes of students with like, here's a book list if you want to, you know, go a step further in your learning. That's when we get all these these laws. Folks don't know about the real contributions of individuals that may have carried an identity of LGBTQ. Um, it's interesting because they didn't have that language back then, so they didn't know if they were LGBTQ or not. They just knew they were different. And so uh, when we think about, uh, let's just say you, you brought up uh, Lorraine Hansberry and, and James Baldwin, who uh, developed a, a really special friendship over the years. What if we would have not had a James Baldwin or Lorraine Hansberry back then? Um, and so, you know, when we think about all the literary contributions of James Baldwin, all of that is sucked out of a place like Florida, and you won't even be able to critique it. And, you know, James Baldwin was really big around the, the right to critique, uh, not just, you know, to, to support things all, all willy-nilly. And so what these laws are doing, it is, it is preventing our students from being able to be critical of things. And this is not just like everybody, I'm not saying everybody needs to like everything James Baldwin says, but you, you, when you don't allow folks to read it, you remove that opportunity for, for a, real, um, op- a real opportunity for discussion. But at the same time, there may be some unintended consequences arising from these laws. One, they they think they're doing something by, you know, saying, oh, you can't read these books. Students, I don't know if they know this or not, but I learned this just the other day when I told a student that I would, you know, provide them a, a book stipend for the bookstore. They was like, we don't even go to the bookstore to get our books anymore. It's all digital. And so that's one of the things that just went over their heads is what students aren't even getting these books from traditional, you know, uh, areas or ways. The the other thing is it's going to backfire in a sense that higher ed is going to dry up in these states. Uh, Students, this is, it is proven, uh, HRC has the data, that this is the most equality-minded generation ever. Students, 18 and below, they don't care about these issues that these politicians are making issues for us. So uh, Florida, places like Florida, uh, will start losing, start losing students. They're going to start, start, start losing uh, qualified uh, faculty members in these, in these institutions. It's going to be hard to fundraise. Companies are not going to want to be associated uh, with, with these institutions. And so certainly um, it is going to backfire. It actually already has, um, in a sense. So it, it, it's backfired in the sense that when they tell us that they want to ban it, that makes folks want to go see what exactly are they trying to keep out of the hands of folks. The other thing is electorally, I just don't see uh, long-term how this is a winnable uh, electoral strategy. I just don't. Um, especially when you look at the amount of uh, folks that will be able to be eligible to vote in 2024, he's alienating, they are alienating a whole swath of uh, the electoral population. And so um, I definitely think it's going to backfire. It's already has students. I've already done uh, executive walkouts uh, in many of these states. And I think it is soon to come uh, the dil- deleterious impact of these of these laws on Um, uh, what do they call it, Uh, unintended consequences of these laws. So far, this battle over LGBTQ plus identities and rights has been predominantly state-led. But that hasn't stopped some on the federal level from joining the fight. The Republican-controlled House passed a transgender athlete ban this year. But since Democrats control the Senate, and the White House has already threatened to veto the measure if it does come to President Biden's desk, there's really no chance it would become law yet. Meanwhile, the Biden administration has taken some steps to protect LGBTQ Americans this year. The administration introduced a new Title IX proposal that would explicitly include transgender people and create specific guidelines for the inclusion of transgender athletes in sports. 
It's important to note that the side that's pushing most anti-LGBTQ legislation is pretty adamant that that's a mischaracterization. Um, You'll hear them talk about things like parental rights, religious freedoms, religious exemptions to skirt around uh, the characterization of of anti-LGBTQ. So in legislative debates on the state level, you know, we hear mostly Republican lawmakers arguing that, you know, bathroom bills are necessary to protect young female students from being assaulted. Um, even though there's really no evidence of that really happening anywhere. We see uh, in arguments around transgender athlete bans, um, you know, people talking about preserving the integrity of women in sports, preserving the fairness of women's sports. So they don't characterize these bills as as anti-LGBTQ. They don't characterize the effort more broadly as anti-LGBTQ. They just characterize it as protecting mostly children. On the other side are people arguing that while you may not be explicitly saying that these bills are anti-LGBTQ, here's how they will disproportionately affect the LGBTQ community. So for example, with Florida's Don't Say Gay law, The bill itself doesn't say the word gay, you know, that's an argument that that proponents of the measure have frequently cited. Uh, We do know that because the measure prevents educators from talking about sexual orientation and gender identity in school, that disproportionately affects LGBTQ students or students with LGBTQ families. So... While they argue that it isn't anti-LGBTQ legislation, the effect on the LGBTQ community is clear. The effect Brooke is talking about is the fact that a staggering 25% of Black transgender and non-binary youth attempted suicide last year. That number is double the rate of their Black LGBTQ cisgender peers. Black, transgender, and non-binary youth are also more likely to report experiencing higher rates of victimization, including discrimination, threats of violence, physical attacks, and attempts from others to change their sexual orientation or gender identity. Yeah, those are the consequences of the kind of violence that we've been talking about, the the, the, the violence of erasure, the um, the epistemological violence, the the violence of saying that your experience, not only does your experience not matter, but the models that you should have access to in order to help you make sense of your experience and give you some um, hope and possibilities and and actually serve as a form of healing, we're going to get rid of that. That's Dr. Marlon M. Bailey, a Black queer theorist and critical performance ethnographer who studies Black LGBTQ cultural formations, sexual health, and HIV-AIDS prevention. Today, he's professor of African and African-American studies in women, gender, and sexuality studies at Washington University in St. Louis. For Marlon, learning about Black queer figures and activists was literally life-saving. I can remember the um, in high school, my first 
grappling with my, well, one of the earliest parts, uh, earliest parts of my life were grappling with my sexuality was um, Go Tell It on the Mountain by James Bond. When I read this in high school, from cover to cover, I think it was the first book that I read from cover to cover. And, and then I began to learn about um, Audre Lorde and uh, Bayard Rustin and a whole range of people who were models for me and helped me see that my experience was a legitimate experience and that there were people who were black like me who were fighting for our narratives and our stories to be told and basically for our existence and um, our lives to be recognized. And I think that's what's at stake here. Reading James Baldwin and reading other, other uh, materials during that time, it saved my life. And so I can see I can see the consequences of what happens when you are a young person and you are dealing with sexuality, with your sexuality or also your gender, and you don't, you're not in a supportive community of origin. And so you don't, you often don't feel like you have anybody. And knowledge can be a source of savior. It can be a source of healing. It can be a source of courage, um, possibilities. It can be a, a, a life source. This becomes extremely important when so much of the historical retelling of LGBT activism and liberation is not only overrepresented as white, but oversaturated with stories of white men. A lot of telling of history, telling of LGBT rights and progress toward liberation. It's it's constantly being told as a white queer narrative as opposed to a black and brown and indigenous narrative um, that is more accurate to, to what contributions that um, black LGBTQ people have, have played. From writers like Lorraine Hansberry, author of A Raisin in the Sun, and James Baldwin, whose Giovanni's Room remains one of my personal favorite novels, to politicians like Andrea Jenkins, the first openly transgender Black woman elected to public office in the U.S., the list of Black queer activists and history makers is not only lengthy, but it spans decades. For David Johns, director of NBJC, one of these figures who was revolutionary in the fight for equal rights was none other than Marsha P. Johnson. Marsha P. Johnson is a, a Black uh, woman. We refer to her now as a Black trans woman. She referred to herself uh, not using that term. She used a term that I will not use because it is no longer in vogue. Um, but she referred to herself often as a Black drag queen. Um, and she is an organizer and an activist, and she is responsible for the Stonewall Rebellion. Um, the Stonewall Rebellion is something that is often erased, but there would not be a, a Pride Month uh, recognition, there would not be Pride marches, there would not be a Pride moments, and there might not even be the LGBTQ movement um, as we know it if it were not for Marsha P. Johnson. Marsha P. Johnson was born on August 24th, 1945, the fifth of seven children born to Malcolm Michael Sr. and Alberta Clyborne. At the young age of five, Johnson began wearing dresses, 
but she was bullied and sexually assaulted at the hands of a 13-year-old boy, and it stopped her from showing her true identity for some time. I was young, but I was young and naive when I started wearing dresses at five years old, and I stopped for a long time because the boys next door used to try and get fresh with me, you know, try and have sex. Immediately after graduating from high school, Johnson moved to New York City, where she adopted her full name, Marsha P. Johnson. The P, she said, stood for pay it no mind. She made friends with Sylvia Rivera, a Puerto Rican transgender girl, and the two became instant friends. The 17-year-old Johnson became something of a maternal figure to the 11-year-old Rivera. But living in New York was hard. Discriminatory laws persisted, and Johnson found herself forced into sex work as she looked for stable living conditions. Uh, She lived in New York City at a time when policies were designed to terrorize us. It was legal for uh, shop owners to discriminate against people who they believe were, quote, homosexual. Um, There were rules governing um, the pants that women were expected or or not expected to wear. And so this meant that uh, people seeking safe space would often congregate in particular places, which exposed them to additional violence when the police would raid places like the Stonewall Inn. Um, And in this particular instance, when police were attempting to take advantage of already marginalized people, Marsha P. Johnson was one of the people that said, no, no, not today. Um, And her actions, along with others in that moment, led to a week of resistance, which we refer to now as a Stonewall resistance. And she, along with her good girlfriend, Sylvia Rivera, started um, STAR, um, street transvestites, activists, revolutionaries, an organization that um, was early in the LGBTQ movement in centering um, the rights of uh, children, um, LGBTQIA plus children, many of whom had been kicked out of their homes, uh, denied access to education and opportunity. Um, And the work of Marsha and Sylvia uh, continues to be important when we think about the targeting of trans folks and the disproportionate impact that legislation uh, and legal and social efforts to Um, commit genocide against trans folks have on Black trans women and girls in particular. The second activist we should be aware of, David said, is a man by the name of Bayard Rustin. And lately, Rustin has been getting a lot of attention. See, Rustin was one of the masterminds behind the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. You know, the one where Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his I Have a Dream speech. But one day... This nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Rustin was born on March 17, 1912, and was one of 12 children raised by his grandparents. It was his grandmother, Julia Rustin, who instilled the movement of nonviolence into him at a young age. His grandmother was a member of the NAACP, and her involvement in the organization often saw leaders like W.E.B. Du Bois and Mary McLeod Bethune visit their home. Um, It is impossible to talk about the um, uh, civil rights movement, um, the March on Washington, um, or the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King without naming uh, Bayard Rustin, who was literally the architect of um, many of those movement moments, Byard is a, a Black uh, man who identified as homosexual, who was arrested for 
um, engaging in homosexual intimacy, what was once uh, legally defined as sodomy. Again, an example of how policies are used to, uh, as weapons against us. Um, but Bayard Rustin is someone who traveled the globe learning principles of uh, nonviolent uh, non non organizing, um, as well as um, cross-cultural coalitions and movement building. He took lessons he learned um, around the world and in Europe and Africa in particular, um, and, and, and taught them to Dr. King and helped to inform um, uh, things that are often celebrated, but that are not acknowledged as resulting from his leadership simply because of his identity. Um, and so I think it really important um, that in June and, and February, when uh, these two moments that are very much married, uh, but are often thought about as separate, um, uh, reflect the contributions made by uh, Brother Rustin and Sister um, Marsha. But there are others whose names don't come up as often. For Leslie, that's Dr. Elaine Locke. Uh, being a student at Howard, um, I, I learned so much about uh, Dr. Elaine Locke, and he was the first Black um, Rhodes Scholar and uh, was a storied, uh, you know, philosophy professor at Howard University. He was also openly gay. He was a mentor to Langston Hughes and so many other uh, literary um, folks that, that we that we read today. And he's also credited with being. Uh, the father of the Harlem Renaissance. And he considered himself, uh, he considered that black people needed to uh, make their artistic contributions uh, in the world. And that can be also a sword against um, so many of the violent, uh, you know, injustices that was happening of the day. So Elaine Locke is someone that is typically not always talked about, but uh, he's someone that, that I really, uh, you know, get a lot of inspiration from. But not all of the history makers are no longer here. A new generation of activists and advocates are still pushing the fight for equality and equity forward. And one of them is none other than Representative Maxwell Frost. A progressive from Florida, Frost made history in 2022 when he became the first member of Gen Z elected to Congress. His story is, is really inspirational and it really kind of bridges this divide uh, between, you know, like the, the uh, politicians of Joe Biden's era and now we have, what, a Gen Z, the first Gen Z person um, in Congress. But he's so, uh, just so good uh, and, and is not the typical, I think, 25-year-old you would see and you would expect to see in Congress, but he is very sharp on the issues and very serious about uh, making the lives of his constituents better. And it's just that much, you know, better that he's a member of the LGBTQ community. And while there's so many, many, many more names, Marlon also wanted to take time to honor those who often go unnamed as well, particularly in the fight for HIV and AIDS prevention. I think the, particularly the, those activists who, um, Black queer activists who uh, sound, sounded the alarm around HIV and AIDS and the disproportionate impact that it was having on Black gay men, Black women, um, and Black queer people in general um, before it, there was a public discourse about it. I remember during the 80s and early 90s, uh, um, Black folks were really, really catching hell with HIV 
and AIDS and the, the prevention models um, were really targeting white gay men and the focus was really white gay populations. And there's still a lot of that going on now. And so I'm thinking of people like Essex Hemphill and Asato Saint, Joe Bean, um, Melvin Dixon, Audre Lorde was doing a lot of activism around um, HIV uh, prevention, um, and 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 look and really sounding the alarm around uh, the way that Black gay men um, were being their experiences. Our experiences were not being captured today. A host of organizations exist to carry the legacy of these icons forward. The Counter Narrative Project, the HIV Prevention Institution, the Marsha P. Johnson Institute, along with NBJC and HRC, of course, are just a few of these organizations. And despite the fight ahead of us, there's still hope. One what gives me hope is uh, just young people, students, Uh, even, you know, younger than me. And I'm not even, you know, that old yet, but it's like the... Students that are, you know, 23 and under, they are so unapologetic about what they want, what they what they need uh, in terms of resources and the and the type of society that they want to live in. It will get better. It's tight now. But, you know, what Martin Luther King said, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it always bends towards justice. So that's what gives me hope. I'm your host, Cheyenne Daniels, race and politics reporter for The Hill. And from all of us at The Hill, thanks for listening to this episode of The Switch Up. We'll have more episodes delving into the intersection of race and politics soon, so be sure to follow The Hill at T-H-E-H-I-L-L on all social media for future updates, including episode drops and articles. This episode of The Switch Up was edited and produced by Christian Carter with help from Julie Slattery, Lisa Williams, and Cynthia Rutt. Special thanks to Jared Keller of the Human Rights Campaign.